0: We're going to be in Isaiah 28 through 31, but in just a moment we're going to read from chapter 30. So last week a three-chapter section, a beautiful section in Isaiah 25 through 27 on the city of God, the strong city of the Lord's salvation of His people. Now we're coming back to another section where the Lord exposes the sin of His people. Isaiah does this, you know. Have you picked up on the pattern yet? He alternates between themes. One week we'll hear about judgment, another week we'll hear about salvation in the great city of God to come. And then he's back to judgment and grace throughout all. Isaiah also skips around in time. Sometimes he's talking about his time, sometimes he's talking about the coming of Christ, and sometimes he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Today we're back to a section where God is exposing the hearts of His people. But over this section, really beginning in chapter 18, where we will start today, on through chapter 39, the theme over the whole thing is very simple. Trust the Lord. Now, there's a section that we're going to deal with today within that larger section. It's chapter 28. 29, 30, 31, four chapters. And in those four chapters, there are five woes or ahs, as we'll see. They begin with the word ah or woe. They're judgments. We're calling them grievances that the Lord has against his people. But woven throughout these grievances are promises of grace Woven throughout are calls to repent, and the call is to trust the Lord. So from chapter 30, verse 15 is where you'll want to be. Chapter 30, verse 15, we're going to read just a few verses that are a sampling of the grievance of God that he has with his people, but also the grace of God that he extends to his people, and the call of God that he gives to his people. And then we'll consider the whole section. So if you'll stand with me in honor of God's Word, Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. And a thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits To be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Grievance and grace. The grievance. The people did not trust the Lord. There are five grievances. In these chapters, for lack of trust. They're all mentioned here. Some start with the word ah. It's also translated woe. And it means this, sorrow. Sorrow for those. And then he goes on to express what they're doing that is so grievous. Here in the short sampling I read, verse 16, the grief is this. They said, no, verse 16, no, we're not going to trust the Lord. We're going to trust in horses. What does that mean? It means we're going to trust in the might of other nations to help us, God's people, in our crisis. And so, verse 17, the might of those nations that they're putting their trust in will turn on them. And a few will cause many of them to flee away. That's the grievance of the Lord. They're not trusting in Him. The grace of the Lord. Throughout the five woes in these chapters, as we've said, the Lord makes promises and He extends a call. And He says, return to me and trust me. That's found in verse 15 when He says, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength but they're unwilling. So, verse 18, the Lord has to wait. He has to wait to be gracious. He's waiting for their repentance. He's waiting for them to return. And until they do, He's going to let them go, continue on in the sorrowful state of rebellion that they are in. Well, what's going on in Israel? and in Judah. Remember, they're all God's people, but they're divided, and the northern part of God's people, Israel, stayed with the name Israel. The southern part, with Jerusalem at the center, took on the name Judah. What's happening? Now, Isaiah the prophet has visions of times beyond his time, but in his time, What's happening is the Assyrians are a threat to God's people, and that is the time of Isaiah's prophecies. We're going to hear more about Assyria in the weeks to come when Isaiah steps out of this prophetic, poetic mode that he's in, and he's just going to write some history in just a bit, a few chapters later, chapter 36. But Assyria is a threat for two reasons. Assyria is a threat because Assyria is a powerful, ruthless nation with ambitions. And as history repeatedly shows us, powerful, ruthless nations with ambition act on those ambitions with violence and with war. And that's what's happening with Assyria as it's coming after Israel and Judah. But it's also happening because the Lord is using Assyria... To discipline his people because they have been unfaithful to him. The history of this is found in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can read that today when you go home. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, Israel to the north was taken by Assyria. 1740 through 1720 ish was their conflict. Or, I'm sorry, 740 to 720 BC was their conflict. Judah to the south was invaded, but Jerusalem, the city, was spared by God, only later to be taken by the Babylonians. Now, in all of this, the Lord did not abandon his people. It looked like it. They thought he did. But in all of this discipline, the Lord did not abandon his people. He disciplined them, but he did not forsake them. And in all of this, the question was, will God's people trust God? Will they trust him to protect them? Will they trust him to care for them? Will they trust him in a way that is evidenced by them keeping God's covenant with them in faithfulness. It simply means to trust and obey, to love the Lord, to trust Him, and to obey Him. Will they do this, or will they remain unfaithful in their relationship with the Lord and go trust other nations like Egypt to protect them in their time of crisis? So the question is always before us as the followers of Jesus Christ. Who do we trust? To what do we give our loyalty? Where do we set our hope? And that's a tricky question, isn't it? Because you might assume that to trust the Lord To be loyal to the Lord, to put your hope on the Lord, it might sound like, well, that just means I don't do anything. I don't get up in the morning. I don't go to work. I don't carry out my responsibilities. I don't make money. I don't pay my bills. Why? Because I'm trusting the Lord. No, that's not what it means. To trust the Lord means that we carry out our daily lives the whole time. Having minds and hearts fixed on Him. Trusting Him to use everything we're doing for His glory because we are doing it for His glory. And in obedience to Him. That's the question that remained before God's people in the time of Isaiah and it remains for us today. So these chapters are about trust. Maybe we could say these chapters are about the lack of trust. Five chapters woes, grievances, and five words of grace with callings to return. We're going to go through the five. Go back to chapter 28. The first one is found in the first verse. Isaiah 28, 1. The grievance that God has with his people is they did not trust the word that God gave them through his prophet, Rather, they rejected the message of the Lord. Verse 1, ah, he says, which means woe, sorrow to those. He mentions Ephraim. This is another name for Israel to the north. He speaks about the drunkards. If you go to verse 7, you'll see that the drunkards he's talking about are the leaders, the priests, and the prophets. They're drunk on drink, but they're drunk on power. They're drunk on pleasure, and they're drunk on fear. Lots of things cause us to stagger. They are not giving the vision of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord and the instructions of the Lord to the people. Verses 9 and 10, they, the leaders, the prophets, the priests, are actually speaking disrespectfully of the Lord and of his word. Verse 9, they want to know, does the Lord think we're children Is he treating us like newly weaned children? Verse 10 of chapter 28. Does the Lord think that we need simple, childish instructions like precept upon precept, line upon line, just a little bit at a time? Are we like children who have to have parents sit down with us and open the children's storybook with their fingers pointing to little bit at a time? precept upon precept, line upon line. Does God think we're children? That's their attitude toward God. That's what this poem, this prophetic vision means here. It's like Ahaz. Do you remember him back in chapter 7 and 8? Ahaz had a threat at that time from Syria. And the Lord said, I'm going to take care of you. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz said, I'm not going to do that. And he said it politely. He acted religiously about it no i can't put the lord to the test what he was saying is you don't really expect me to have simple trust in such a complicated issue as the syrians and the the people to our own people to the north coming to get us do you these people in the chapter that we're looking at they're tired of simple truth the simple truth to simply trust the lord They're tired of this repeated message. Verse 14, they're scoffing at it. Now Isaiah, toward the end of the chapter, verse 23, uses an illustration of a farmer. And he said, look, a farmer. God has revealed to a farmer something very simple. You plow up a field, you sow the seed, you reap it, and the farmer knows what to do. It's simple. It's the same simple truth over, 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 line upon line, precept upon precept, little bit at a time. It's the simple truth. And Isaiah uses that illustration to say to the people of his day, if the farmer hears the natural revelation from God to just farm, Why won't you listen to the special revelation of God through his prophet to trust and obey? Verse 11, so the Lord will use a people of strange lips, a foreign tongue. Who is that? The Assyrians. And they will speak the same message to you that you rejected but they will speak it to you in your captivity the lord is grieved he's grieved over his people because they've rejected his word and so he disciplines them and the question is is there hope and what are the words of grace here well let me read again verse or let me read to you verse 16 Right in the middle of all this, verse 16, chapter 28, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be shaken there's still an opportunity to believe. The foundation, the stone, the tested stone, the cornerstone, in this context, is the word of the Lord. It's the foundation upon which we build our lives. We believe it and we obey it. And whoever believes it and obeys it will be stable, stable in faith. Everything can be happening around us, but the one who believes the word of the Lord is stable in faith. Again, what did the Lord say to Ahaz when he didn't want to believe the simple truth of trusting in the Lord? He said, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. You won't be able to stand unless you trust the word of the Lord. What grace it is that God is still calling His word is still here for us. It's still out in front of us. We're still hearing it in our ears. We can read it every day. It's grace. The unfolding of the word gives light. And so as the Word, God's revelation, continues to unfold, we come to the point of seeing that the cornerstone, the sure foundation, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 2, is the living Word of God, who is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus does not replace the written Word of God, the Scripture. No, the Scriptures teach us of Jesus. And the Scriptures are the words of Jesus. Church, church. The grace of God to us is this. This is the grace of God calling to us in the grievance of God. Be sober-minded and receive the simple truth to trust Christ. Let the simple truth of trusting Christ Work its way into every new situation and conversation and relationship and opportunity and decision that you have. Simply trust and obey, precept upon precept, line upon line, the message of the Lord. Second, the grievance of chapter 29. Again, in verse 1, through almost the whole chapter there. Verse 14, verses, the grievance of God is this. They did not trust the Lord from the heart. This is where we get into worship. Worship from the heart. The grievance of God, what grieved the Lord's heart is they weren't worshiping the Lord from the heart. Verse 1, he says, ah, woe, Ariel. Who's that? That's the city of David, he tells us. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Ariel means hearth or altar. Altar because Isaiah is about to speak of unacceptable worship. Year after year, he says in verse 1, you celebrate your feasts. Year after year, you make your sacrifices on the altar. Verse 2, yet I will distress you. That means judgment. Judgment is coming why verse 13 chapter 29 verse 13 why what is broken God's heart because the Lord said because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men the worship of the Lord And the proper fear of the Lord by God's people are being treated like a mere formality, like something they have to do just to make God bless them. In a sense, what they're doing is they're treating God like the lowercase gods of the nations. Pitch Him a few pennies, offer up a few prayers, make sure you go to church. And he'll bless you the rest of the week. All the nations were doing that. There's no heart in that. The Lord is a living God. The Lord is living and active. The Lord sees and hears. And what does he want from his people? Deuteronomy 6. He wants his people to love him from the heart. Why? Because God has a heart, and He loves us from the heart. He wants covenant loyalty. He wants covenant love. He wants it from the heart because in the heart, reality lives. Reality lives in your heart, that deepest place where you are. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts because he has loved us with his whole heart. Their heart, in Isaiah, their real loyalty, it was off making plans with other nations so that they could get on with doing real world stuff like resisting the Assyrians. They went to church to keep God happy. But they went their way after church because they didn't think God had anything to do with reality. And that is unreality. And it grieved the Lord. And this too contributed to their need for discipline. But again... It's faint in this, in this woe, in this second woe. It's faint, but there's a bit of hope in the form of God's grace. Verses 5 through 8, he says, I will judge the people who are going to afflict you. Verse 14, he says, I will put an end to the unwise undiscerning leadership that has led you astray sometimes it's the removal that makes way for the new in other words the Lord says true worship will be restored now I see Jesus all through that John chapter 4 Jesus is talking with a woman, and they're having a discussion about worship. And Jesus said, the Lord seeks people who worship Him in spirit and truth. Because they trust Him. You worship the Lord when you trust Him. When your heart is engaged with the Lord, you worship Return to Him, trust Him from the heart, and you'll worship. Grievance number three, still in chapter 29, found in verse 15. This grievance is for not trusting in the sovereign knowledge of the Lord. In other words, believing that that they were not known by the Lord, and if they're not known by the Lord, they would not be held accountable to the Lord. The grievance is they were rejecting the whole order of maker and made, or creator and created. Verse 15, he says, Ah, woe to you, sorrow to those who act as if God can't see, who act as if God doesn't understand, who think that they can hide their sins and their deeds of darkness, who think they can hide themselves who are acting like Adam and Eve, trying to hide themselves. They say, God doesn't hear, God doesn't see our plans to trust in Egypt rather than to trust in Him to save us. Verse 16, the Lord says, You have turned things upside down. The thing made says to the maker, He did not make me. That's upside down. The thing made Says of the maker, he has no understanding. That's upside down. Verse 20 through 21. But those who practice evil in this false notion of not being seen and accountable to God will be brought low. Once again, discipline is needed. Judgment is coming. We need to know that God knows, that God sees, that he has sovereign knowledge and understanding, and that all will be held accountable to him. But once again, a promise is given. Oh, what grace there is. About the time you think this grievance is, the, is, is it. I mean, it's over. No, the Lord comes back. Verses 22 through 24, of chapter 29. For the sake of God's covenant with Abraham, God will bless and multiply his people he will instruct his people with under with understanding of him they say he doesn't understand god will give them understanding he is so gracious and kind hear this the lord sees the lord sees all the way back to the covenant of abraham it says in this chapter verses 22 through 24 he sees further back than that though he sees back to his eternal plan and god is faithful in spite of the foolishness of his people. In in spite of the foolishness of thinking that God is not watching, that God is not paying attention, that God can't hear, that God doesn't understand. In spite of that foolishness, Isaiah is saying God is faithful to accomplish his plans. What grace! That's grace enough to trust him. Grievance number four is found in chapter 30. And that's the passage that we read at the beginning. The grievance here is of the Lord is that His people were not trusting in His wise plan. They were carrying out their own plan. Verses 1 and 2, He says again, Ah, woe, sorrow to you, my stubborn children, declares the Lord. You carry out a plan, but not mine. You make an alliance, but not of my spirit. That you may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. This is such an absence of trust in real time. This is real time. When, when we get here, you know, Isaiah, as we've said over and over, the way he's prophesying in his, his poetic visions. Sometimes it's difficult to find the time. It's not difficult here. He just mentioned Egypt. He just set this in real time for his people in the 8th century B.C. They are being threatened by Assyria. And the Lord said, return to me, trust me, I'll take care of you. And in real time in history and situation, they want to go down to Egypt and trust in Egypt. And so, verse 8, the Lord says, write this down. And Isaiah wrote it down for our good, and that's why we're reading it today. He says, this is where, verses 8 through 11, this is where an untrusting heart and head end up. This is what they actually said. They said to their prophets, don't tell us what God wants anymore. Don't tell us the word of the Lord anymore. Don't talk to us about God anymore. We should fear that this would ever happen to us. And we are afraid that it has already happened to many. Many who have had a heritage of Christianity in spirit because of the covenant call of God as it cuts against the culture, as it cuts against the sin of the human heart, as it cuts against it, many are saying, we don't want to hear that anymore. Don't tell us that anymore. Don't talk about that anymore. No more of this God. No more of what God says. We should fear that this would ever happen to us. But we're afraid it's already happened to many. And so, verse 12 of chapter 30, The judgment of the Lord, he says, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of a cistern. This is the context of the verse that we read just when we started, the verses 15 through 18. It's the context. And it's amazing that in that context, the Lord still gives a verse like verse 15. So back where we started, the Holy One of Israel says, Return to me. In returning and rest, you'll be saved. Return to me. That word means repent. It is the most beautiful word. We've said it here from, at, at this congregation for decades now. The word repent is one of the most beautiful words you'll ever hear. It is full of hope. <laughs> if there was no hope, there would be no reason to repent. The only reason to repent is because there's hope. Return, turn around, and go back to Christ. Line upon line, precept upon precept, simple truth, over and over again. Surely we can come up with something better than that, we say. Surely we can nuance it a bit. Surely, in our complex culture, there are other ways and other words that we can find beside repent. No. It is a beautiful, everlasting word until Christ comes back. Turn. Turn. It happens in the mind and in the heart. Let it happen in your mind and heart. It happens in moments of church. It happens in early morning hours. It happens as you lie in your bed at night. It happens at 2 a.m. It, it happens while you're driving. It Just let the heart turn to trust. There's such grace in this. Do you understand this? There's such grace in this. God is not trying to beat you down. God is trying to receive you home. Return. And then he says rest in returning and rest in his word. Rest in his truth. Rest in his care. Rest in his grace. This is your deliverance. This is your salvation. It's a beautiful word. It means they're going to be delivered at that moment but it's so much more expansive than that because it means we're going to be saved in repentance and resting in Christ. Quietness, he says. In quietness and trust is your strength. Quietness is a sign of trust. Quietness resides in a heart. It's a spirit of quietness. It doesn't, doesn't mean silence. If it meant silence, we couldn't pray. If it meant silence, we couldn't say, How long, O oh Lord? We can pray. We can, we can speak. If it meant silence, we couldn't share the gospel. If it meant silence, we couldn't speak the truth. We can pray. We can, we can evangelize. We can speak the truth. But from a quietness, a place of trust in the Lord. And we know when the heart's not quiet in the Lord, then what comes out of here is not prayer. It's not evangelism. It's not truth. It's all manner of other things. Called the wisdom from below, James 3, that creates chaos. Quietness and in trust. Here is your strength, he says. Hear that, church. Now, the prophetic and poetic nature of these words, it's It puts before us this general understanding of the nature of god's grace and of trust in him returning resting quietness trust and it did have a context for isaiah's day it was it was israel and judah and assyria and egypt but if you're a bible marker this would be a good verse because it is reapplied and can be reapplied in our lives it's how we come to faith in jesus christ you can become a Christian today with these words, repentance, turning to Christ, resting in what he did on the cross to save you from your sins. He died in your place for your sins to take the wrath of God and the penalty against your sins, yours in your place, and you can rest in that. You can come to him and just trust him, and you can become a Christian with these words. I hope you will today. And then every day, every moment of every day, this can be your strength. Everything that is threatening your faith, everything that is disquieting your heart, everything that, that might be tempting you to mistrust God. And it's, I know it's a struggle, but you return to this general, beautiful, four-word way of receiving God's grace again. And if you're tired and you're weary, then just ask somebody to help you. Just ask somebody to do it with you. Pray with you. Don't be unwilling. Verse 15, he says, but you're unwilling. Don't be unwilling. Don't leave grace waiting to flow to you. Bow low and trust Christ. Well, there's one more grievance, and then we're going to return to what we just said. It's found in chapter 31. We'll do this one very quickly. The fifth woe, verse 31. Verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because there are many, in horsemen, because they are very strong. Yes. Those who do that do not look to the Holy One of Israel. They do not consult the Lord. Now think about that. If you know much about the Bible, maybe you don't, so I'm going to tell you a quick story. But if you do, you'll remember this. It's found in the book of Exodus. God's people, Israel, had been delivered from Egypt. <laughs> it's amazing how the connections are there. God's people, Israel, have been delivered from Egypt. And they're out in the wilderness. They were enslaved for 400 years. If you don't know the story, they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And the Lord raised up Moses. That's where Moses comes in. And he led them out of Egypt after 10 plagues. And they got out in the wilderness. And they're looking at a sea in front of them. And the Egyptians and all their chariots and horsemen and horses are coming after them. And they don't know what to do. And the Lord says, be still and watch. Watch what I'm going to do. And he parted a sea. And those people walked on dry land through that sea. And when they got through it, and Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots and horses got in that sea, the Lord caused the sea to come back, and they were swallowed up. And it was a great deliverance, a great salvation. And then we come to this verse. And where are they going? They're going back to Egypt. And what are they trusting? Horses and chariots and horsemen that grieve God's heart. So he said, verses 2 and 3, that he's going to judge them both. But the amazing grace of God Verses 4 and 5, beautiful, beautiful verses. He said, the Lord is like a lion over his prey. The Lord is like a bird over its nest. The Lord will protect his city. The Lord will protect Jerusalem. The Lord will protect his people. So verses 6 and 7, turn and trust the Lord. Simple. Verses 8 and 9, Trust the sovereign power of God over Assyria and every other nation, every other enemy that is an enemy to His glory and His gospel and His people. They will fall by the sword of the Lord and the Lord will save His people. Where sin and grievance abound, grace abounds all the more. We've ended, covered another large section of Isaiah. This one giving us both grievances and graces and the call to trust. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord and the Lord's Word. The most specific and practical way I can tell you to do that is to trust the Bible. The Scripture. The Holy Word of God. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. Trust the knowledge, the sovereign knowledge of God. Trust the wisdom of God. Trust the power of God. Trust the grace of God. Trust God. How do you trust God? It has to get personal. I wrote a little note to you on Friday morning from Isaiah 6. It got personal for Isaiah. When he saw the holiness of God, he said, woe is me. If one of these grievances has landed on you, I know it feels weighty. But please own that. Own it. Make it personal. It's the only way. It's the only way to receive the grace of God is when you can say, like Isaiah did, woe is me. And then, walk through chapter 30, verse 15. I told you to mark it. At least remember it. Walk through it. Walk all the way to Christ. Turn to Christ, rest in Him, quiet your soul, and trust.